Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, February 5th, and we're doing something a little different on today's episode. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and today, rather than have a conversation with one of our analysts, we're going to air an interview with Twilio CEO Jeff Lawson from our member live stream, Motley Fool Live. Earlier this month, Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner and senior analyst Tim Byers spoke with Jeff about the company he started, Building Effective Organizations, and his recent book, Ask Your Developer, How to Harness the Power of Software Developers and Win in the 21st Century. If you don't know Twilio, you can think of it as a cloud-based platform as a service company that provides developers with the building blocks to add communication tools like messaging and phone calls to applications. The business is a full favorite, and it's been an incredible performer since its IPO in 2016. With that, I'll turn things over to David, Tim, and Jeff. Jeff, it's such, such a good time here. Let's have fun the next half hour. Welcome. Thanks, David. Great to be here. Thank you, and congratulations on all your success. Twilio was first picked in Motley Fool Rule Breakers this month, four years ago. We're still holding, so $29.05, thanks to our colleague, Rick Minares, who pitched it to the team, and uh, it's been a spectacular, I guess it's a 13-bagger now or so. Jeff, I think your cost basis is a little lower than ours. <laughs> well, it does help when you start the company. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, um, Tim Byers is, is standing by. Tim, welcome. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too, David, and and great to meet you, Jeff. Um, I have to say, s- straight up here, I I love the book. I finished it last night, and and let me just put this in context here. I'm an Audible learner, so I've watched a lot of your interviews. I watched you. I watched Byron Dieter interview you. I Patrick uh, O'Shaughnessy is one of our our favorites. I listened to you on that podcast. So if you've caught my attention in a book. You have done something amazing, <laughs> and oh, and you, and you did, um, and and a lot of it I think just has to go with a little bit of blast from the past because you put in um, from your own experience writing that Hello World program. I did the same thing. I think 1982 Hillside Junior High School on a TRS-80. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> ten, um, print Hello World 20. Go to 10. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so it was great. But I want to kick off with something that you write as the central thesis of the book, um, which is build or die or build versus die, I guess is a better way to put it. And I want you to put that in context for us because build versus die as you're arguing that software development is a core competency for organizations. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. You know, if you think about the interface that most companies now have with their customers, it's become a digital one. So think about your bank, right? 20 years ago, you walked into your bank and if it was well-decorated and well-lit and the teller was friendly and they gave your kid a lollipop, you said, wow, I, I really like my bank. And today your bank is an app on your phone. And if the app is fast, if it's easy to use, if it doesn't crash, and if it gets better all the time, adding new features and functionality that make your life better, you say, I like my bank. And so this transformation is happening in industry after industry, where the people who are able to build great digital experiences and great digital products, well, they're the ones who are winning the hearts, minds, and wallets of their customers. 
And so every industry is becoming a software industry. It is almost literally a Darwinian evolution where the companies who are best able to adapt to the changing needs of their customers and to build that software and answer their customers' needs, those are the ones who win. And so I liken it to, you know, 20 years ago, IT was considered a cost center, right? It was about the laptops for the employees or maybe the the financial software that the CFO used. You're like, great, let's just try to keep the cost down as much as possible. Let's outsource all that. It's it's not a, a source of competitive differentiation. But now because of the prevalence of mobile apps and and the web and everything else, customers actually experience all that software. And now it is a source of competitive differentiation. And so in the old world of IT, you would often have this question of, oh, should I build the financial system or should I just buy a solution off the shelf? And look, usually it made sense to just buy a solution off the shelf, but you always have this old build versus buy question. And I would say because of that Darwinian evolution that's going on where the great builders of software can differentiate in the eyes of customers, now it's not build versus buy, it's build versus die. And that's the nature of that uh, of that expression. That's it's interesting to me. And let, let's just talk a little bit briefly about what Twilio is. You're a company that makes tools that developers use to build software. So, I mean, there's I'm not going to say it's self-serving here, but you're in a pretty good place if if the companies out there have to build software and you're creating tools that help companies build software, particularly communication software, that puts you in a pretty good position. But there was another story you have in the book that I like a lot, where you co-founded with a a friend of yours. I think it's Matt Levinson. Do I have that name right? Yeah, you do. Okay. Um, And you founded this extreme sports a sporting goods store, and you write about how <laughs> I love the visual of you in the back room, the headphones on, classic coder, and you're writing software to improve the operations of this store. So talk about build or die. You're like using software to improve the experience of this store. I, I want you to talk a little bit about that. And have you done anything like that at Twilio now? This experience of like, look, we've got to build software and and put this out you know, on a constant basis. Well, that's, I mean, it's basically the story of my life as a software developer. The amazing thing about software is that you can continually iterate on it. You're never done. You can always listen to your customers and hear something better that you could be doing, get a new feature request, or even if it's something simple, like making it faster or whatever, there's always ways in which you can improve the software. And that creates kind of a, a, a cycle of continuous improvement, but in the market of also competition between you know, companies who want your business. And so that pace of software, you hear like, oh, the, the business world is getting faster and faster. And a lot of that is because of software, because software invites you to continually iterate and make it better and better and better. Think about all those apps on your phone. You know, they're downloading updates now kind of silently. You don't even know it. You're getting new versions of those apps pretty much every week. They're fixing bugs, they're getting better, and they're adding new features and functionality that are going to make your use of that app even better. And so that's really the superpower of the world of, of, of software. And, uh, and that's one of the uh, reasons why it's so important 
for companies to really embrace that because if your competitors are really embracing that and, and, and iterating quickly and running a lot of experiments to figure out what customers want and they don't want, and you're not, you're relatively static. You wrote the software a few years ago and you just let it sit there. Well, guess who customers are going to actually find to be a, a better option, right? The company that's always testing and iterating and getting better and better and better. And that's why, you know, it becomes a little self-fulfilling. You mentioned that like Twilio provides the infrastructure for developers and companies to be able to do that. And you're right. You know, we arose because software developers and the companies who employ them saw the need to work more iteratively and to work and to move faster. And therefore infrastructure like Twilio or Amazon Web Services or Stripe arose to serve those customers, to enable them to meet the cadence of software and to serve you know, the, uh, their customers at internet scale and internet speed. But then because we exist, now more companies can get on that bandwagon and more companies can execute with that iterative spirit. And then that makes the importance of it even more for every company. And so it really is folding into this whole build versus die thing because just the nature of business and the speed of iteration and the speed of competition has just accelerated uh, in recent years because of that power of software. It's just kind of built in. Yeah. Really well put, Jeff. And, you know, I think about, well, I used to say around the halls of Full HQ, whoever has the most techies wins. And so I'm, I'm very much, um, I guess, simpatico with you on this. And that's been part of how I think about every industry when I pick stocks. So, you know, ask the developer, who has the developers? Um, many of our viewers who have not yet gotten to see your wonderful book don't know that the title comes directly from, well, basically a billboard that you put outside the Silicon Valley for everybody to drive by and you were working with your marketing team and nobody came up with a good idea. And then you finally just said, let's go with Ask the Developer, which is a brilliant stroke. And so this has to be one of the few books that I can think of that started with a billboard as the title eventually of the book. I wanted just to shift briefly to Amazon. You speak highly of Amazon, Jeff, both of your time there and where it is today, of course. And that's been another long-term hold for us, a great company. Specifically though, Jeff, you credit Amazon for the inspiration for organizing in small teams. Um, I'm curious if you'd like to just lay that out a little bit for our members so they can hear and understand what that means. And then maybe was there another best practice that you've learned from Amazon? Absolutely. You know, most companies, there's a tendency as they get bigger and bigger and bigger, they slow down, they get more bureaucratic um, and you know, decision-making gets obfuscated and the employee base just kind of lose its, its energy that it might've had when it was a startup, right? That's the natural tendency of companies. And here's the interesting thing about Amazon. I got hired there uh, in 2004. My friend Dave Chappelle hired me and the company, he had started at Amazon when they were about hundred people. I got hired in, the company is about 5,000 people. Dave promptly quit. He was like, okay, I've, I've been here long enough. He left shortly after I got there. He went and started a startup. And that startup later got acquired back by Amazon. And when Dave landed back at Amazon, the company was 75,000 people. Okay, so here's this guy, my friend Dave, who's like, you've been at this company. You saw it at 100 people. You saw it at 5,000 people. And now you see it at 75,000 people. And I called him up one day. This is about 2011. And because I was starting to scale Twilio. And I'm like, how do I make some good decisions here? I said, Dave, can you compare and contrast those three versions of Amazon? 100 people, 5,000 people, 75,000 people, because it must be totally different. And he, he thought about it for a minute and he said, God, you know what? It's exactly the same. The same energy, the same drive, the same bounce in people's step, the same intellect of the employee base. Like 
it's the same company. It's just, I work with, you know, with hundred people closest to me. I would just have no idea that there's like, you know, 75,000 other groups of those people all around the company because it feels like that same startup I joined in 1997. And I thought that is astounding. And the secret to that is keeping it small small teams. And when you build a company, when you're growing the company, the goal is to try to keep that energy, that intrinsic drive that every employee has in the early days of a startup and replicate it many, many, many times over as you get bigger. And the way to do that is to continually divide the company and divide the mission of the company into small teams, teams of no more than say 10 people and organize those teams around three things. Number one, a customer, Number two, the mission for what they're trying to solve for that customer. And three, the metrics of success that tell you if they're actually succeeding in that mm. endeavor. And with those three things, now what you've done is you've unleashed that team's ability to go sprint for that customer every day and to go innovate and try to be as autonomous and independent as possible. And in that small group setting, every member um, is really connected to the customer and really connected to the mission because it's small again. And nobody, you know, and, and you think about a small team of say 10 people, if there's a low performer on that team or someone who's checked out, you're not going to get by for long in that type of environment. Whereas if you're one of 500 people on a team, you're like, yeah, it's easy to kind of get lost in the shuffle. But when you're one of 10 people with a strong sense of ownership over what you're trying to accomplish, somebody who's checked out won't make it very long. And everybody is very close to the decision-making and very close to the customer they're serving. And I think that's the magic of how you scale a company while keeping everybody really motivated, really driven, and, and, and coming from a position of really understanding why they're there and what success looks like at the local level, like at their team level. And Jeff, have you just described how Twilio is organized? Yeah, so that's how we've done it as well. And I talk in the book, you know, it sounds easier said than done because you're like, okay, let's say you've got an, you know, if you're a small company or startup, okay, I got 10 people. Or if you're a, a big company, you have a new initiative, maybe it's got the 10 people, but then it's succeeding and it starts growing. So it becomes 20 people or 30 people. You're like, oh, what do I do now? My team that was nice and small just got big. Well, the answer is you have to keep, it's like a mitosis process. You keep dividing the team and you divide the missions and you divide actually the technology, like the code behind it so that you can continually dividing back into small teams that tackle various parts of the business, but every team in that story is connected to a mission and has a lot of drive to do that thing really well. And so I, I talk in the book about how you can scale something, whether it's a, a startup or whether it's an initiative inside of a bigger company and continually divide it to keep that entrepreneurial spirit, even as the company or the initiative continues to grow. Jeff, do you think that's a, a, a indicative of the way you, you talk a little bit in the book about how you try to make the values very actionable? And Twilio has, if, if you look at it, and I encourage anybody, if you're an investor or thinking about investing in Twilio, definitely take a look at, at the site and the list of values that, that Twilio has. One of them is wear the customer's shoes. You talk about this in the book. And it seems like what you're talking about just there, about dividing into small teams, is sort of an, a way to actionably wear the customer's shoes. Because if you have a huge team, most of the people can't be near the customer. But how do you make it where, say, like the accountants are near to the customer? Like there's only so many people that can be near to the customer. Could, but can you talk a little bit about this value and how you get everybody a little bit closer to, to the customer? Well, you know, it's interesting. When you think about it, companies, you know, in the early days of a company, like I'll talk about the early days of Twilio, 
in any given day, like I might be writing some code, talking to a customer who's like a, a sales prospect, uh, supporting a customer with customer support, uh, and you know, paying some bills. Like you're doing everything. And as companies grow, the tendency, of course, is for there to be silos because people get more functional. You hire experts to do each of those things, right? And there's a lot of great things about, you know, hiring an amazing customer support team so that the developers who are building the product don't have to answer every support ticket. Obviously, that is beneficial. But the problem is if you let it go too far, you end up putting these walls up that separate all the functions. And, you know, you're going to have a sales team who's doing sales and like their job would be to you know not have to bring the developers into every conversation with a customer. Right. And you've got sales engineers to do that. Right. Uh, or the customer support team is to whose job is to answer the support tickets as opposed to having the engineers have to do it all. And if you do it perfectly, what you've done is with all good intentions, you have accidentally siloed the people building your product from the very customers they're building it for. Yeah. And again, you know, it all is, came from good intentions, uh, including product managers. Many product managers see their job as protecting their team from the distraction of customers. And I think the best product managers are those who see their job as facilitating interactions between their team and their customers. And yeah, it's not every interaction, but if you don't poke holes in those walled silos that are, arise in the company, then yes, you will isolate your team from the very customers they're trying to serve. You know, I love the story of one of the uh, product leaders at Twilio, his name's Ben. And he started his career, his first job out of college was he was a developer at Bloomberg writing software for the terminals. And, you know, he got there bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and, you know, showed up and he said to his manager, you know, like, hey, so when do we get to go to a trading floor to talk to, you know, traders who are using our software? And the manager kind of laughed and said, oh, you know, that's, that's, that's a funny idea, right? We've, we've never actually done that. And Ben was a little dumbfounded. He's like, you mean we've never, you've never met a customer that uses the software that we every day show up and build? He's like, well, not really. And so Ben actually just found his own path. He went and found a friend of his who was a trader. And he said, can I, you mind if I stop by? I just want to see. So Ben showed up at the trading floor and they had always assumed that their widget that they were building, like they spent every day building this widget, they assumed it was the full, you know, 27 inch screen was their beautiful widget. Well, it turns out that the trader had it in some tiny little, you know, 16 by 16 box in the corner of their screen. And it wasn't even legible. You couldn't read the fonts, like nothing. And it was completely different than how they imagined their software was used. And it wasn't until they actually went and interacted with a customer that they actually found out. And then that changed their roadmap entirely. Like we got to make fonts that work at small scale. We got to change the and all these things happen. So I, I share that example in the book because it's a really good example of what happens when you actually don't, when you when those walls between you and the customer are so tall that you actually have no idea how your customer is actually using your product. And so as leaders, I think it's our job to intentionally poke holes in those walls that separate our teams from the customers they're serving. Love it. Jeff, when we were first researching your stock in, I think it was late 2016, Uber was such an important proof positive in our minds, uh, such a scaled, important company. You were doing incredibly important work for them. I'm sure you've leveraged that relationship and that, that brand to benefit you in lots of ways. And I, I now am aware of many of the companies. How could I know all the companies that you work with? But I'm curious in particular, uh, this is a new angle here, China. I'm curious, how much experience does Twilio have with Chinese companies or partners and in the build versus die narrative, the size of China and the amount of developers that they have. I'm curious your take on kind of US China next century. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a great question. So Twilio doesn't uh, do a business in China. 
Uh, we uh, don't put any of our technology there. We don't have a go-to-market team there. Uh, we don't have development teams there. And, you know, it's sort of been, it's, it's complicated doing business in China, right? And so our take has generally been, look, we're operating in an enormous market outside of China. Um, and we can build an amazing business without uh, having to uh, deal with the complexity of doing business in China. And so that's where we're going to focus our efforts. And that's what we've done today. Thank you. Tim. So, um, Jeff, something else I wanted to just follow up on here. In the book you talk about, let me see if I have this right. Is it true that everybody who gets a job at Twilio is required to at least try to develop something, like write a little app? Maybe even it's the Hello World app, but yeah, is that true? <laughs> that is true. So it's one of the mechanisms that we use to try to keep our company close to customers. You know, going back to your question you know, earlier about like how do the accountants stay close to customers? Well, we have everybody build an app using Twilio. Now they get help. There's a, like a class that they go through that teaches them the basics of coding and how Twilio works. And they graduate from that uh, you know, one-week course having built a, a small app with Twilio. And what that does is it builds empathy, you know, so that our, our all of our employees gotcha. know what Twilio does. You know, they don't just read about it on the website. They've actually built something with Twilio, as well as have empathy for our customers and know what customers go through when they are, you know, signing up and building something with Twilio and deploying it and the joy that they get when they see it working. Um, and that's one of the mechanisms that we use to help keep that connection between all of our employees, not just the developers, but the accountants and the attorneys and the sales reps and everybody, uh, so they uh, get the opportunity to use Twilio. I, I love that. And um, I know, David, you're going to ask about Agile, but I want to make a plug for something that you've built. It's called Twilio Quest. And it's this game for like, if you've never developed anything before, I, I really think it's awesome, Jeff. I, I love that you and, and um, well, I mean, we have limited time. Maybe if you come back, we could talk more about it. But check out Twilio Quest if you want to learn how to develop. But David, let me let me kick it to you here. Sure. Well, it was likely developed with the Agile process, which for people in the software world recognize uh, as, as a longstanding approach to innovation and development. And it's often used these days by scrum masters to do things that have nothing to do with software. It's really a process. And the big one, Jeff, we know it works for creating software, but you also argue it can be effective for the entire company. You organize around small teams, as we talked about earlier. What is an example of a project that was not led by developers that has benefited from the Agile process? Well, you know, there's so many parts of Agile, you know, to, to think about. The essence of agility is being able to respond quickly to changing conditions or new information. And that's not just, you know, developer teams who are, you know, trying to iterate quickly on their software products, but what part of your company don't you want to be able to respond quickly to changing conditions? And if, you know, 2020 and the onset of a global pandemic didn't prove to everybody how important it is to be able to respond quickly, like, I'm not sure what will. Um, and so one of the favorite examples I have in the book is of the, um, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the bank uh, that is um, uh, that is taken on agility as the mandate for its entire enterprise, and that's ING Bank. And if you look at it, there's a lot of content out there about how, how ING Bank has adopted agile like across the company, even into like the bricks and mortar branches that they operate. They operate in agile. So, like you might say, like what does that mean for a bank branch to be agile? Well, it means that first of all, you think of the staff at that bank branch as a small team. And you think about them having ownership over the results of their branch. 
And you think about them operating in two week sprints, just like developers might of saying, all right, you know, stand up Monday morning. All right. What is it we need to get done over the next few weeks? Well, here's the, here's the list of things we have on our agenda. Great. And then the team sprints and every two weeks have a new sprint and get the team together and say, this is what we're doing. And it's about pushing autonomy and ownership down to the local level as much as possible. And it's about empowering them with short cycle times to think about what it is they need to accomplish. So instead of saying, what is our annual plan for our bank branch? Say, what is the plan for the next week or two weeks? And get the whole team on the same page and operate at that cadence. And that's an example of adopting agile practices across an entire company. I love this. Is, I want to kind of bring this home a little bit because the way you talk about the ask your developer process and you call it a process like and, and at the end of a lot of chapters, you'll give like five or six questions. You'll say, ask your developer about this, ask your developer about this, which I think is great. That's a practical way to do it. You also you tell me if I've defined this right, Jeff, I think of it as like you sort of operationalized this old process you had with Matt your friend, Matt Levinson, who's saying like, hey, I have a business problem. Can you solve this for me? And you as a developer saying, I think I can solve that for you. Yet Matt, not just prescribing to you, like, here are the five things I want you to do. It's like, I have a problem. Can you solve it? You saying, yes, let me write some code to solve it. Is that, have I described it properly? So the, the book you, you did, Ask Your Developer is a book for business people, for people who are not technologists, yep. who are not developers, because I get asked a lot like, hey, it can be kind of intimidating. I don't speak the same language as those developers. You know, I don't know all the technical jargon. I don't want to look like a bozo, right? Like there's all sorts of things that people worry about when they're trying to work with developers. And my answer is like, that's fine. Like, don't try to pretend to be a technologist if you're not. But what you need to do is to turn to your technical talent and instead of giving them solutions, like don't just hand them a, like a, a specifications document and say, hey, I want you to build this thing to the spec. Go to your technical team with the business problems you're trying to solve and unlock the creative problem solving ability in that technical talent because developers are creative problem solvers. And that skill comes to bear in you know, writing code and solving technical problems, but it can also come to bear in solving business problems. And I first learned this when I was working with my co-founder at that uh, retail store, Matt Levinson, when, and he was, a, the reason I share the story of Matt is he was basically a technophobe when I first met him. You know, he didn't even use the internet. Like he was just like a kind of an old school, it's like, oh, I don't need all this, this newfangled technology, I don't need it. And what we learned though, because he wasn't a technical person, it actually really ended up uh, making our collaborations really work well. Because he would just come to me and say, look, I don't know all this computer stuff you do, but here's the problem I'm trying to solve. And he would explain to me a problem. Like in our retail store, he was working on the incentive system for our store managers. And he had this idea. He said, well, you know, if I could incentivize the store managers to convert people who walk in the door into buyers, that's kind of what we want in the business. We want people walk in the door and end up buying something, right? He said, Jeff, can you think of a way that I could uh, provide, uh, you know, I could track and then report to that store manager how good their conversion ratio is of shoppers into buyers? And I said, huh, well, that's really interesting. 
Yeah, I get, we could probably put one of those like light counters at the door, right? You know, that counts on people walking in and out. And then we could correlate that with the data that's in the point of sale system. How many unique customers did we serve that day? And give uh, on an hourly or daily basis an update to the manager of what their conversion ratio is. And I was like, let me work on that. And a few days later, I had the prototype up and running in our first store. And that sort of collaboration where he shared the problem with me, how do we figure out the conversion ratio as opposed to the solution? Jeff, I need you to put up door counters and the blah, 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 and do all the stuff, right? First of all, he wouldn't have necessarily known how to solve the problem, but that benefited him. Yeah. He didn't have to know how to solve it. That was my job. I'm the creative problem solver in that realm. He shared the business problem with me. And so that's what I, one of the key takeaways from the book that I encourage business people to do is to share hard problems, business problems, or customer problems that you need solved and let the developers and your technical teams come up with a variety of ways to figure out how to best solve that problem. And you'll be amazed at what happens. Software gets built better, software gets built faster, and you'll come up with solutions that you didn't even think about when you were when, when you initially set out to do it. And that, that's the nature. And that's what I see companies like, you know, the companies you typically think of as great digital companies like Google or Amazon or Facebook, that mentality is much more prevalent in those kinds of companies than I think elsewhere in the world. And that's part of why I wrote the book is to share like, hey, this is how to unlock this talent. Developers are hard to hire. They're hard to retain. And if you treat them like factory workers, it's gonna get even harder. So yeah. hire these um, people this, with this technical talent that are hard to find and hard to retain and then empower them. Let them use their full brains. And guess what? You'll be amazed at what happens. The book is Ask Your Developer, How to Harness the Power of Software Developers and Win in the 21st Century. The company is Twilio, led by Jeff Lawson. And listeners, that is going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus@fool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you're a Motley Fool member and you're interested in checking out our live stream, all you have to do is go to live.fool.com. If you're interested in becoming a member, head over to getlive.fool.com. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today, and thank you for listening. Until next time, Fool on! <laughs>